Welcome to the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show here on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. It is 7.06 p.m. on a Tuesday evening, a beautiful July 19 evening. Getting ready to get on a plane early Thursday morning. Head out for the Iowa Speedway High V double header jamboree. So can't wait for that. And with a very short turnaround, I'm going to end up staying over and spending the better part of the next week in Indianapolis and cover the second Indy Road Course race of the year. Head home on Saturday. And what? And I think turning around again, maybe the next Thursday uh, for Nashville. I think the next weekend is off. Then the next weekend after that, I will be in Monterey for my annual coverage of the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion. Uh, Yeah, and then we jump into Portland, jump into the season finale for IndyCar. Uh, I believe the weekend after that, September 11 race. Then a little bit of a break, and then off to road Atlanta for IMSA's season finale, Petit Le Mans. And then a day or two after that, we have the big debuts of what should be all of the new IMSA GTP hybrid prototypes uh, hitting the track there at road Atlanta. So going to be a fun and busy run, but I cannot wait. Got our cat, Rosie. She is chilling with me on the right side in the office here. Hopefully I don't get bit too many times by her, but that's my girl. She chews on me every day in some way, shape, or form. So uh, wounds and scrapes, that's just part of the deal with her. Uh, What else can I tell you? Had a really cool call. I don't know, maybe about an hour ago uh, from a friend who asked me to be a producer, co-producer on a IndyCar-related documentary that he has been uh, in motion with here for a little bit. Uh, it's about a IndyCar driver. So really excited about that too. Going to help start helping with that project, I think, right away. So things are getting busy, but good, good, good kinds of busy. So we already said thanks to all of our partners to the show. Why don't we say big thanks to all of y'all for sending in, <laughs> oh, a heck of a bunch of words. According to Microsoft Word, 3,738 words worth of questions for this episode. So try and do about an hour or so. I do need to limit ourselves to about an hour this time as well. So let's see how much we can get through here in just a moment. Last quick thing to mention, really do appreciate all the ongoing inquiries and kind notes that y'all send in wanting to know how my wife is doing and I tell her about many of your inquiries, and she says thank you. And she is moved by all of those things. And I can't always tell you everything that's going on, not everything that in this fight for uh, for beating the heck out of cancer and also to regain all the mobility that was lost. Can't share everything. She doesn't want everything shared. And sometimes when we have things going on that aren't great, uh, I just don't talk about them or, or if I am unable to say, attend an event, uh, I might not always give you the exact reason why, but nonetheless, I do appreciate, and she does appreciate all the really kind, kind stuff that you send in. So let's get rolling here. Let's get a little music bed going 
and dive in and rock with as much as we can possibly get through here in about an hour or so. Jerry Siddeth, I hope you are enjoying your vacation here. Jerry, who puts together the questions for us. And guess what? Kind of like the OG question assembler show formatter, just awesome helper in general. Good guy by the name of Tim Falkowitz stepped in, the original uh, stepped in to help with Jerry taking off for the week. Much, much, much needed break for him. Huge thanks to Tim for, as always, just being a heck of a person. So thank you, Mr. Falkowitz. So what are we going to open on? Hey, I don't know if you noticed, uh, there was a motor race last weekend in and among all the nonsense and whatnot taking place in terms of contracts, silly season. Oh boy. I'll tell you this, my IndyCar loving friends, the amount of phone calls that have been had over the last week just are ridiculous. I had one this morning that absolutely blew my mind. And so I need to do a little bit of additional chasing and sourcing on it. But, uh, oh man, there's a lot going on. Uh, A lot of things in response to the Alex Pillow, Chip Ganassi Racing, McLaren Racing thing. But there's other movement going on too. And some other developments that, if they prove to be true, they're just going to make me question, can we trust anything anybody says? So... Uh, more on that whatever i do find is going to be published on racer.com here asap but kevin devries kev how you doing brother uh we are going to kick off the show with you he says well i'll admit i was wrong i anticipated the toronto race would be a gong show with a relatively inexperienced field uh just running into one another's but instead the drivers all for the most part kept it clean and played nice ish also said it was awesome to see the pack grandstands back and for those of you who've never been to an IndyCar race, the access to the drivers and teams is unmatched in any other sport. Kev also mentions that he had chats with Colton Herta, Connor Daly, Alex Pillow, and they were very approachable. That's not only a fact, but yeah, uh, I don't remember whether it was 95 or 96 as my first uh, Toronto IndyCar event, Kev. But from the very beginning, at least for my time there, it has always been one of the absolute nicest, kindest, warmest, openest events on the calendar. And so that was back in the cart days. That has not changed in the modern era NTT IndyCar series. It's just wonderful. So I know that access this year was a little bit of a challenge for some, but hopefully in a not-too-distant future where border restrictions are relaxed a bit and whatnot. I'm hoping for any of you who have not been to the Toronto IndyCar race, get there. It's awesome. It really is one of my favorite kind of free day memories. I think it was maybe 2000, 99, 2000. I'm I'm struggling to remember exactly which, but uh, was there uh, part of the uh, cart weekend. I think I was engineering a formula atlantic car that weekend i think yeah if i remember correctly how's this i'll bother trying to remember what the hell it was but was there uh in was part of the undercard uh was engineering the atlantic uh championship there and however it worked out my flight home wasn't sunday night wasn't even monday i think it somehow worked out to be tuesday morning so just had a full free day 
and I spent all of Monday wandering around, enjoying downtown Toronto, spending all my per diem and more. And I think I capped it off uh, by seeing, this will tell you whatever year it was, but the very first X-Men movie. I remember it was at whatever great little cinema, and I was blown away that at this cinema, they had a variety of flavored uh, salt and powders to put on your popcorn. So pizza flavor and this flavor and that flavor. And at least for what we had back in 2000-ish in the good old United States of America where I came from, that wasn't a thing. So I was gobsmacked by Toronto's wackily advanced uh, popcorn toppings and did see that very first X-Men movie. So there you go. But anyways, uh, beautiful place, wonderful place, great music stores, great this, great that. Uh, get there, definitely. Uh, Jameen Tuttle. All right, man. Jameen, you're kind of bringing us back to uh, to reality here. Says, I believe Scott Dixon is the greatest of his generation. Is there a young driver you see is ready to take that title in the next decade? Says, Joseph Newgarden seems the only one truly-ish type driver on the way there, provided he races for another six to eight years. Says, bonus question. Who's most looking forward to an Iowa reset for Jimmy Johnson? Uh, or would you say Connor Daly is the one looking forward to a reset at Iowa the most? It's a great question on who would be the next greatest of their generation. You mentioned New Garden. I would say that's the obvious place to look. Would also say that now, what, 10 years in? So Dixon's, what, 21 years, 22 years-ish? Joseph's approximately halfway there. We're talking about how long Dixon's been doing this. Um, Two-time champ could very easily become three, four, five, six if he does stay with Penske and they are able to maintain the high level of excellence uh, that they've gotten back to after Ganassi's won the last couple of titles. Who knows what's going to happen this year, but I will not be surprised if it is a new garden or a willpower. But I can't see anyone else that falls into the category of being remotely close, Jimmy. So, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on with Joseph as being the guy. But if he wins one or two more championships over the next 10 years would probably end up being the best of his generation by the numbers. It's a pretty high bar, though, being set by Dixon to say, like, wow, this person's in Dixon's realm. Granted, it's hard to say that about most people, but what does Colton Hurt's future hold? Is he going to bolt for F1 the moment a seat opens up at McLaren? Or if uh, Andretti Global ever comes to fruition, if he's looking to jam the minute... An opportunity comes up. Again, it's possible that if he were to come back in a few years, whatever, and and go on an epic uh, winning streak, that he might fall into that conversation. But I don't know if anybody is really jumping out to me as being ready to qualify in that regard. Pelo, Alex Pelo, we're talking one championship and what we've seen for one and a half seasons now. Uh, of being a front runner, but he's giving us the impression that this guy could have a phenomenal 5, 10, 20 year IndyCar career 
and set some amazing records. So I don't know if I see anybody after Joseph that really falls into that. As for a reset, getting back to an oval, oh, heck, that has to be Jimmy Johnson, right? Jimmy's not had the funnest of times lately. Definitely since we departed the Indianapolis 500, overstating the obvious. Um, But I'll just say that while Connor has definitely shown plenty of speed and great stuff and some strong results uh, coming out of Indy and whatnot, this to me is the next best opportunity for Jimmy to feel like Jimmy. And if he is not in the mix for a podium, maybe even more this weekend, I will be genuinely surprised, but also disappointed for him. Because after this, we head to good old worldwide technology raceway in terms of ovals, and that's it. So two shots, well, two events, three total races for Jimmy to do something that makes him feel magically fulfilled in the way that he did for so many years in NASCAR. And after that, not much else. So definitely him. Uh, Maddie McDonald, you ask a question that I uh, haven't had a chance to ask. You said, I noticed that Felix Rosenquist didn't seem to be using much push to pass at the end of the race. Even after he got word, he could stop saving and attack. Any idea why? Said he had a ton compared to Dixon and Herta. Was he just playing it safe? Also says some really sweet things here. Uh, sharing love for my wife and uh, saying he's happy to hear that we got a chance to recharge our batteries. Thank you. Thank you, Maddie. I don't know. Uh, I'd rather not just ignore the questions I don't have answers to. I'd rather just say I appreciate you asking. I don't know. Have not had a chance to talk to Felix this week. I do. Uh, I will try and remember to ask and try and remember to include that in an upcoming episode here, Maddie. Uh, all right, we're going to dive into some Toronto matters. And I know that we got a little bit of the Polo McLaren Ganassi thing coming a little bit later in the show. But uh, thanks to Tim, he re- he definitely knew and definitely realized, hey, uh, we'll let that drum stay silent for a little while. Let's talk about Toronto. Said it sounded like Felix said, that's what he gets for being on the outside during the race regarding the incident with Alexander Rossi says the precedent of quote elbows out had already been set. Does this push the series towards a driving standard where anyone on the outside of a turn can be run off the track or into a wall, uh, when they're going side by side, let's, you got a little bit more coming here, but let's, let's stop there for just a second. Daniel would not say that this sets a precedent for that. The understandings that I have, if we're talking about, well, hey, wait a minute, Roman went around the outside of Alexander at mid-Ohio, Alexander ran into him and ruined Roman's race, and Alexander ended up getting a penalty, uh, but hey, uh, not too dissimilar things happened here between Felix and Alex, and Felix did not get penalized. What you had at mid-Ohio, without a doubt, was a cumulative effect, right? You had Rossi in the incident the lap before with Romain where he just rode him dirty out into the dirt, exiting the keyhole. You had the next lap where the contact was made. Alexander said, hey, 
was not intentional. The car understeered. I don't doubt him. Didn't then, didn't now. Um, then there was also the, the wheel banging incident, trying to get by his other teammate, Devlin DeFrancesco. I look at those three things here, Daniel, as all connected when it comes to him getting a penalty. I think I wrote in something. I don't know if it's come out yet. Might be in the mailbag, uh, racer mailbag that's due out tomorrow. Honestly, no joke. <laughs> I've probably worked. It's Tuesday evening. I think I've written seven to 8,000 words this week starting yeah Monday morning. So I don't remember where it is, but someone there had mentioned that had Alexander's contacts at Mid-Ohio been singular, had it just been the one with Roman going around the outside, Alexander understeering, getting the wheel knocked from his hands and all that, I don't think IndyCar would have penalized him. Between Alexander saying, hey, it wasn't intentional right right away, there being in-car video evidence that supported exactly what he said happened. i got to believe IndyCar's race control folks would see that, see the video and go, okay, yeah, that sucks. Like truly that sucks for Romain, but this wasn't a driving error. For example, where Alex was just driving like a nut and ran into Romain and right purely from your instigation of idiocy, lunacy, whatever, see you made this happen because you did too much of something. I could see a penalty coming if they saw that, but that isn't what happened. Nonetheless, there were two other points of contact with drivers that happened to come down. So I think this is mid-Ohio penalty. It's three things stacked into one. Hey, you get to drive through pit lane as a result of that. Minus those other two, don't think it would happen. And I think that needs to be the mindset applied here to why Rosenquist was not penalized. If you look at him popping down the inside, trying to pass Rossi uh, very, very deep into turn three. I don't know if I want to say it was a surprise to Alex, but I think it might have been a little bit of a surprise in terms of, okay, that was an option, but you're coming from a little ways back, and whoa, we're just about to turn. This isn't something that you got up on my gearbox, set this up coming down the straight. I made a mistake of leaving you too much room on the inside, and boom, you got me. This was a... If, if you do go for this, this is going to be tight. That's what happened. So there's nothing critical to say against Felix. He's a race car driver. He's paid to be aggressive, take positions, go as far forward as he can. Alexander, paid to do those same things, was successful to his great credit in giving just enough room for Felix to go down the inside. Not saying he surrendered the corner, but he did not chop the guy off. He didn't put the two of them into a dangerous situation by not leaving Felix enough room. This was high-quality, artful, precision driving on Alexander Rossi's part as he and Felix turned into the corner. Uphill, low grip, tires a bit, tired by then, etc. But he didn't leave him much room. And so this is where I think a determining factor might have been made. 
Alex did not have to leave him more than a millimeter, right? So it's not as if he did, again, Alex did nothing wrong, 0% wrong. And here's the unfortunate, but to add in, there was so little room given to Felix on the inside that if anything happened with Felix's car, contact was going to be a very probable result. And it was as Alexander understeered at the keyhole in mid Ohio, and then went into the side of Romain. Well, Felix got on the throttle to try and power up the hill out, accelerate Alex and take the position from him. And when that happened, we had oversteer in the back of the car slid to the left hit Alex's car and then they kind of clashed and came together and ended up with Alex in the wall. <sighs> Effectively the same kind of thing. Alex didn't intend to understeer or want to hit him with Roman with the front of the car. Felix, I can guarantee you was not trying to get overly aggressive on the throttle to then light up the rear tires and then make it swing and hit Alex. This to me was just a case of there was so little room left between the cars that this bout of oversteer that Felix then had to try and manage ended up being the thing that kicked off their coming together and Alex heading into the wall. So not make, there are no excuses being made for anyone. This is just trying to be realistic about what happened. Had we seen Felix take his hands on the steering wheel and turn left into Alex to try and hit him or drive him over or something like that penalty all day long, send him down pit lane. No question, but that's not what happened. Uh, unexpected incident for Alex at mid Ohio, unexpected incident with Felix at Toronto on their own. I can see why IndyCar did not deem either one of them worthy of a penalty individually. Uh, you also say here, shouldn't Felix have been given the penalty considering he corrected the car into Rossi's and therefore wasn't in control at the moment. Again, um, that's not an uncommon thing. Drivers are not in full control at all times. If we, if we talk about folks hitting one another, it probably happened a hundred times during the race. Not all of those incidents involved race ending contact, but at the same time, is there someone in race control who is trying to grade and judge the amount of contact versus the amount of damage received? That's just one of those things where you go, Hey, okay, we got 25 cars on track. It's a relatively short track. It's 11 turns. These laps go by pretty quickly. Everybody's kind of hitting each other. Um, I don't know if you open yourself up to that because I think honestly, if you're trying to judge every little thing, Hey, this person hit me and it broke my front wing end plate. And Hey, this person hit me and it did this. And my floor is a little roughed up or my diffusers, uh, dragging a little bit here that like we would need probably 20. We'd need a person per car. 25, 26 people, however many, watching full-time in-car during every race, uh, 360-degree view to try and judge every little thing. Um, so, yes, 
Felix lost control of his car for a moment in the same way that Alexander did. Was it intent? No. And does losing control automatically mean that, well, you are instantly the person to carry the bag on the blame? If we do go down that path, we're just going to have races filled with nothing but drive-through penalties. Well, I shouldn't say races, especially on street courses where, yeah, uh, nobody comes away clean for the most part. I think Dixon might be just about the only car. Maybe Colton? I don't know. Um, But yeah, I think those two might be the only drivers without any damage to their cars from the race. So honestly, Daniel, and knowing that this is probably the one big contentious thing from Toronto, which is why we're spending a little bit of extra time on it, I'm good with the no call, but I'm also the guy who's unlike what I've seen become an increasing number of folks who watch F1 and just are constantly looking for fouls and penalties and call this and call that and do this. And like, that's not why I watch motor racing. I don't watch motor racing to have the referees blow the whistle constantly. Uh, I don't watch racing for the rule book. I watch it for the competition. And if there's something truly egregious that happens, got it. Uh, Blow the whistle, penalize them. But looking for stuff, and I'm not saying you are, Daniel. I'm just saying in general. uh, My vibe is uh, I don't want to hear from race control any more than is truly necessary. And I don't believe that every little thing requires looking at and review and penalty review and assessment. That's just, I hate that in every other sport. I don't want it here. Uh, Ed Joris, how you doing? said, hey, when I heard the quote, think about the championship message to Pelot after he roughed up his teammate Erickson, all I could think about was my father on a family road trip saying, knock it off. Don't make me come back there. Yeah. Uh, smart, right? I would say without it, doubt that alex's car was a little bit faster than marcus's look how far he motored in the race what 22nd to 6th i mean that's no joke marcus was smart in how he drove where he placed the car making it hard for alex to get by alex was not exactly trying to uh play by that uh play that game play by those rules but i do think it was smart and it truly if you look at how the championship was coming out of toronto um yeah he probably could have gotten by marcus i have no doubt would he have gone past ray hall would he have gotten felix would he have gotten colton or dixon no uh, i don't think there was enough time for him to go that much farther smart call glad the team uh followed your dad's uh, approach knock it off uh greg marrier how you doing greg and i do need to apologize. Is it Marrier or Marrier? I don't know. Uh, if in your next question submission, you want to give me a little bit of a pronunciation guide, I will do my best to not murder <laughs> your last name in all future episodes, but also make no promises that I won't forget and just murder it anyways. It says, hey, the Ray Hall crew looked, uh, looked to pick up some street course performance after their recent Sebring test, which made me want to learn more about the process on selecting where to go testing. How many tests are allowed for the top teams who primarily decides what overall area the team needs to focus on? 
Uh, is that a team principal, technical director, race engineer, driver? A um, couple more questions here. Let me rattle through uh, the first. Four private test days, as I am pretty solid in saying, IndyCar gives its teams four private test days. So uh, there are some other restrictions on how soon you can test at a track in terms of being in the window and event of an event that's coming up, all right? They tend to uh, discourage through the rules and say, hey, if we're going to Laguna Seca on this day, you can't show up there on your own a couple days before and do a private test. That would give you an unfair advantage. So uh, there tends to be a bit of a, a blackout window uh, for testing here and there and you name it. So that, that's something to consider. What you often see from a strategery standpoint with those days is you'll see teams. God, there's so many angles to this. Uh, Greg, in general, you'll see teams say, hey, we're going to protect these four days as much as we can. We will use one, maybe two before the season. Do they have a, a newish driver or a driver that's new to them, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a rookie. It could be, hey, you just came over from Team X. Uh, we need to go testing, get a feel for you, let you get a feel for how we do things, how our car feels, the handling, the whatever, build a little chemistry with your engineer and so on. You'll tend to see teams use one or two days before the season starts. It's also a good warm-up, if you want to call it that, for uh, the crews. Just everybody get their juices flowing before we rock up to St. Pete. Uh, to get going with round one so that's what you tend to get there and then uh, yeah again there's a lot of strategery on where to deploy whatever amount of remaining private test days you have uh for some of the perennial championship contenders greg you will often see them especially if they have veteran-ish drivers You'll see them be very miserly preseason stuff with those private test days. So it might just be one. And then they will save the other three to deploy at places where they believe they could come out with a significant gain in the championship. Something that will benefit them heavily in the championship. So we recently had uh, two different uh, groups from uh, the paddock go and test at Iowa. Why? Well, it's a double header. It's a lot of points to be gained in a single weekend. Also, this coming in the second half of the season. So, boy, these points are going to really help define things a bit. Not necessarily filter out a bunch of people from title contention, but again, you look at it and go, all right, second half of the season, double header, a lot of points on offer. That's one worth going and doing some extra practice for by burning a test day. So basically everybody went and did that. Sebring, as you mentioned, been used forever to replicate as best you can uh, street course setups. It's a natural terrain road course. They only use, uh, they use the outer segment of it, the least, well, there are bumps, but uh, the portion of the track that they can use without destroying their cars. And that has been, once again, a place where teams for decades have done their best to replicate street circuit setups. 
And it's worked for a really long time, so that's why folks go and do that. If you look at what last year, I believe it was the Ganassi team, and I don't remember who all else was there, but they saved a test day for Portland. Penultimate round. No, I take that uh no, I take that back. It wasn't penultimate, it was whatever, penultimate plus one. Um knowing that hey, we're gonna be going into two natural terrain road courses, Portland and Laguna Seca, and then closing the season at Long Beach. It was a pretty smart call. Saying, All right, we're truly getting down to the wire in the championship run here. Let's save one of these test days, I would say the last test day, and make sure that coming into one of these very important rounds that will shape how our season plays out in terms of championship aspirations, that was a really smart one. Uh, Alex Pillow ended up having a great, great Portland, uh, really sunk Pato Awards chances. Uh, Pato, I believe, was leading coming into Portland. That flipped. Um, oh boy, this was something where the strategy applied here, Greg, truly paid off for the Ganassi team, helped boost Alex, got back in the points lead. Pato did not have a particularly great Portland, nor did he have a great Laguna Seca championship was effectively won with the extra speed and knowledge that the Ganassi team brought into the Portland race weekend and applied to great effect. So again, reasons for where you might go here, might go there. Barber can be a pretty popular place to go testing as a natural terrain road course. Um, We see folks, I don't know if we've had anybody come out to Laguna this year, but I know that last year there was, there were a couple teams that did that. I'm sorry, one or two tests in Laguna um had a fair amount of teams come out for that will there be any deciding to try and do that here Uh, there's not exactly a ton of free time between rounds uh once we get rolling here this weekend in iowa i think like genuinely there's one weekend off between iowa and the season finale so is anybody looking to go to laguna i don't know but for those who are in title contention and have a day free that sure would be a pretty smart thing if they're able to so that's that part here. Let's, uh, let me look at the last couple of items. Talking about who determines what you test, uh, that would be between the technical director, race engineer, and definitely the drivers as well. Granted, um, it's not as if the drivers say, we're going to go to the test and here are the items we're going to test. But keep in mind that the engineers don't drive the cars. They're all reliant upon feedback from the drivers as to what they need for the car to be better. So that's a really key element in the decision of what you are going to try and improve. The team is also constantly thinking, trying to come up with new suspension settings, new damper builds, new aero settings that, again, all working in unison would be the best combination, combinations they maybe haven't tried before, etc. So they will bring in plenty of ideas too. Um... There's a lot that goes on here, but there's no single person that tends to set the exact agenda for what is going to be tested and the run day itself, the run plan for the day. Um, Last thing you ask about here is how you get a schedule set up for a test day. What you hear, 
is ownership. Ah, yeah, now there's an Andretti day. Uh, now uh, Andretti owns the track or Penske owns the day. What that means is they're the ones that reached out to whatever track and said, hi, we want to rent this. And the deal is struck. The rental price tends to be frightening. <laughs> uh, it is five figures at minimum and real five figures, not 10 grand, but yeah, it tends to be lots of grands. And so that is where for some of the more modestly funded teams, they will definitely call around and say, Hey, we're thinking of going here. You want to come, you want to come, you want to come. And all of a sudden you have three, four, five teams splitting that price. Uh, in other instances, you might have a team that is a little wealthier and say, Hey, we really want to go here and do this. And you know, we're not too concerned about sharing the day. Uh, and I don't believe anyone's compelled to have to share the day unless I've missed something. So if a team wants to use their private day to go somewhere and does not want to have anyone else there, I don't believe they have to. So yeah. Uh, Thanks for asking, Greg. Really cool and hope for those who have either been curious or had never thought about that but wanted to know. Well, there you go. You take another little sip of coffee, which I shouldn't be drinking at 7.43 p.m., but that's okay. Uh, our pal Ryan Terpstra says, this is a repost because you told me to repost it. You say, should teams make a bigger deal about promoting their over-the-wall and on-the-wall and you name it crew members? Does drivers thank their teams? I think getting to know the teammates might actually make it feel a bit more like a team sport. Says NP NBC NPC. Sure, <laughs> the National Peacock Corporation. Is that it? That's what it's going to become. It's going to become NPC going forward. Uh, should I mention? <sighs> so there's uh, I think it's ShowBuzzDaily.com. Uh, that is a website that I've looked at for a super long time and they post Nielsen ratings and they have, and they tend to do a roundup of all the things from the previous weekend and they will break things down into, Hey, here's sports, live sports, and here's this and here's that. And they have a caveat at the very top of each of those listings that says we only report on shows whatever it is real housewives of something fix this house uh or indycar toronto we only post the ratings for whatever broadcast whatever shows that generated two hundred thousand viewers or more you probably figured out why i would mention that and that's because having looked at what they generated coming out of the weekend i looked at the live sports and uh, i saw imsa sunday being broadcast right after the indycar race uh that was shown on what i think the usa network that generated two hundred and forty-five thousand viewers that was at the bottom i believe of the list and there were lots of things above it, it golf and nascar all kinds of stuff from uh, the weekend, but primarily from Sunday where the biggest ratings were put up. Oh, I didn't see IndyCar, y'all. And if, again, if it was over 200,000, they would have listed it. I didn't see it. So I have not, as of yet, seen anything that says this is the number. This is the Nielsen rating number. 
This is how many people watched the Honda Indy Toronto exclusively on Peacock. <sighs> but I can tell you that the one place where we always find IndyCar ratings that does have that caveat saying if it's below 200,000, we won't mention it. I looked, no joke, I looked like three different times just to make sure my eyes weren't playing tricks on me and I could not find IndyCar. So barring a release from someone somewhere saying exactly how many viewers there were, I am led to assume it was below 200,000, which would be sad, but not unexpected in any way, shape, or form. Uh, to your point here, Ryan, yes, 100%. If I think back to late 90s, uh, crew members, pit crew over the wall in particular in NASCAR, like some of them were so famous and well-known that they had their own trading cards like <laughs> basketball cards, baseball cards, uh, NASCAR pit crew cards, not a joke. Like it wasn't like a ha ha jokey thing. Like, look, you got one and I made one for you. Like this was real because enough people knew and cared. And this is only continued. The, I think a lot of NASCAR fans know the names of the, the crew chiefs slash engineers on top of the box. I don't know if they know the names of all the pit crew members, but I do think that, yeah, there's plenty who have significant profiles and who are looked upon and spoken to as, as real insiders and good folks. And I think you're onto something here. Uh, we know our 25 ish IndyCar drivers. We know them. We know the team owners. We know some of the strategists. We know less, but we know some of the engineers, maybe. I know that's always been one of my things, to try and at least shine a light on uh, the race engineers having been one and, and crew chiefs, chief mechanics. Um, give them love whenever I can. I'm a crazy small piece of the uh, presentational puzzle, though. Those with the biggest, widest ability to expand people's interest and feel like they've gotten to know the crew chief on Alexander Rossi's car, the fueler on Pato awards car. Like in NASCAR, these folks would be known. I think you raise an amazing point, Ryan. And I might even ask you to send this in for next week's racer mailbag, because I'd love to answer this in print in the hopes that uh, some of the folks who I know read the mailbag each week from NBC and from IndyCar, but I can't say if they listen to the podcast, uh, would at least see this raised and answered there. Um, let me see where are we at on the good old clockety clock. All right. Not too bad. Got about 20 minutes to go, hopefully. So let me keep motoring. Our pal Gavin Newton. How you doing, Gav? Says after a few disastrous weeks, with uh, different in-house and on-track issues, does Andretti make more changes to its rosters, crew, driver, etc. besides Rossi? Uh, I don't think so. Um, last weekend was not bad. Colton being the one that did the best, obviously. Alexander was having a very good race until things went sideways with Felix. Felix finished 
third. So Alex, it seems like, had the potential, if not to join Colton on the podium, uh, to be pretty darn close. Uh, Devlin, right? Devlin had pretty amazing weekend in terms of qualifying, starting 12th. Some issues in the race, fell back to 18th, uh, so that wasn't stellar for him. But in general, I'd say there were some more positive elements to his weekend than anything. And really the one that seemed to have the roughest go of things was Romain. Uh, He got knocked around a lot. He did knocking around a lot. Uh, Wasn't great for him. Mentioning the who wants Iowa to be a, a big kind of turnaround. Is it Jimmy? Is it Connor? It's not like Roma is an oval specialist yet, but uh, he's a guy who's been on a little bit of a slide and definitely, I would say, is wanting and needing to get back to feeling fully effective. If it doesn't happen in Iowa, I have got to believe the uh, the Indy Road Course event the following week is going to be one where Roma is just looking to get back to the vibe that he has wanted but struggled to hold on to this season uh, in this move to Andretti. But yeah, so obviously the previous race, total dumpster fire, Gav, but Toronto seemed like there's a lot of positive things here. Uh, Rossi was leaving regardless. Definitely a little bit concerned about our boy Kyle Kirkwood question here i think it's below the red line at death but uh, i'll see if i can pick that up if we have time but i think they're okay uh i really do i I don't mean okay as in watch out ganassi watch out penske watch out aaron mclaren sp uh andretti the andretti bus is barging right down uh between you to go get the title that feels a little bit far-fetched but just in terms of getting back where they should be being effective even if they didn't win the race this feels like as as positive a turnaround from one race to the next for any team that was just in self-induced hell a couple of weeks ago to all right uh this is this is a better reflection of who we are if we have another mid-ohio or two like that this year for them yeah i do think there's going to be some changes but no call for it no need for it right now by any means uh todd hudson and ii lemur y'all are both asking about miles Rowe. todd opens up by saying hey mp please tell me someone is salivating to take miles Rowe to the next level on the road to indy um well ii lemur's question uh or note here uh kind of informs us with how to answer yours todd uh the submission says saw the force indy livery on miles car in toronto what does that mean for him going forward yes so that was noticed by a number of folks who really want to see miles continue moving up uh roger penske person who is funding this now funding it 100 percent this season um he's told me they've spoken with miles and there is a plan to bring them on up, move them up to the next step. Uh, I believe the next step on the road to Indy. I should say that's an assumption, Uh, but move up with him on the road to Indy. I don't know if I would be 
smart in saying exactly whether it's Indy Pro 2000 or Indy Lights next. I don't know. Regardless, Roger has said conversations were held. We're going to take care of him for the rest of the year financially. And if he does well, then we've spoken about how to keep going after that. So this is a conversation he and I had, I don't know, a month ago, something like that. Well, uh, Miles uh, winning like mad on Saturday. A little bit of a clash with Michael Orlando, who he is fighting, I guess, closest rival for the championship um, on Sunday. Kind of both of them did not do favors for, each, for either, uh, but didn't really hurt each other in the championship. So here you have Miles leading the standings, winning more races, what I think four this year, five this year, like really showing he's the real deal. Um, I would just say that provided he keeps doing what he's doing, I don't know if it's dependent upon winning a championship, right? The, the championship, uh, the prize money from Anderson Promotions to use to go up. Again, I'm not, not sure about how any of that might work, but... Roger didn't mention anything about he's got to win a championship. That's the only way we'll keep working together and I'll keep supporting him. Um, He just mentioned, look, keep doing what you're doing, keep doing good things, and that's really the key to us continuing this party. Right now, even though he is at the lowest rung of uh, Road to Indy, and I do realize that they did add USF Juniors this year, but just saying, he started out in USF 2000 last year, is continuing this year, but... He's really, that's the, the foundational place to show if you've got something on the road to Indy. He's demonstrated clearly that he has it. Would also say that he has the look of someone who does not uh, scare easily. He's not phased. He's not, pressure doesn't seem to really get to him. If he were thrown from USF 2000 into Indy Lights, do I think we see him winning a bunch right away and so on? No, of course. Like significantly bigger and faster cars. He showed us enough this year, though, I think for anybody to realize that, yeah, it might not be a year one thing, but you'd be silly not to put your money on miles to either be your 2024 Indy Lights champion or, you know, runner up or something like that. He's showing us he has that kind of potential. So, yes. Uh, someone is salivating. That happens to be RP, the person who uh, helped transform his life last year by getting him onto the road to Indy and paying for it. And it's great to see the Force Indy colors uh, return to Miles Hot Rod. Uh, Kurt Pose, how you doing? Uh, also, Andrew Miller, you guys are weighing in on the same thing here. Say, I was expected to be blisteringly hot. Is there any chance of changing it to a night race? And I know I've seen a few people say that. Um, no. <laughs> they've set a calendar of events uh, months and months and months ago. They have big musical acts coming in. They are going on the stage at this time and the other bands going on there. And like, uh, it's going to be hot, but hot and Midwest and middle of summer. That's not a new story. Not saying like it makes it any different, but Hey, it's going to be really darn hot. Uh, end of July ish timing. Like That's, not totally unexpected. So yeah, it's going to be hot, but no, uh, radically altering the schedule, uh, a week before the event would be the exact thing that you would not do because those entertainers who are coming in, 
Um, I would imagine that there's probably things in their contracts that say, uh, we are agreeing to play at this time period. <laughs> You're not going to change this. We got other things to do. Uh, we got other places to go before and after on wh- whether we're on a tour, whatever it is, like we're not going to be subject to this racing stuff being hot and you deciding to flip the, uh, daily schedules around for that. So, uh, I think they're fairly well baked into what they've announced. So yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I'm not looking forward to 97 degrees, but, uh, Hey, uh, if nothing else, water sales are going to be phenomenal. Um, and I will be trying to drink at least a gallon a day. Um, you also say, uh, if not, and if we are racing in the heat of the day, do we expect passing to be difficult with a lack of grip? Uh, no, I don't famous last words, right? I'm going to be totally wrong here, but if we have baking track, if we have tires that are wearing faster than one would desire, what we tend to see is a handful, not many, but a handful of drivers who have nailed the setup with their engineers who end up benefiting. And you also have, in some instances, drivers who are able in the opening stint or two of the race to just take off and fly. Maybe as either temperatures go up or things cool down, again, depending on the year and the time it's being run, you have those drivers lose the handling and go backwards. At the same time, you have some other drivers who've maybe been a little bit nowhere and surge towards the end of the race as uh, that driver and their engineer come up with uh, some modifications to get them into that happy place. So it's all about the risers and the fallers. That's how I always think of it, Kurt. So this is something where there's going to be some in every segment of each race who are rising or falling. The rising tends to be a smaller number and doesn't necessarily stay the same throughout the race. Um, but the passing happens because what we tend to see is the majority of the drivers when we get crazy heat and then crazy wear on the tires and overheating of the tires and whatever else, uh, you get some ill handling. And it makes it easier for the ones with cars that are either really good or even just slightly better to pick them off in the herd. And again, the fortunes could reverse, but that tends to be how things play out, especially in extreme heat like this on a short-ish track, uh, where even during a night race and it being maybe a lot cooler, uh, you just wear the living heck out of the tires because you're going so fast and putting so much lateral force through them. So yeah, I'm not concerned about that at all. The only thing I'm concerned about is what Andrew Miller raises here. How do you like that for a segue? says, looking like it's going to be a sauna and a steam room room race here in Iowa, at least for Saturday. Any new driver cooling innovations falling on from last year's cool suit system you can talk about as I fight a burp? Um, Haven't heard of anything new other than the same uh, cool shirt that uh, drivers have been using. If we're talking difference, I do expect the vast majority of drivers to run with them. Uh, the, the gutting it out, as you mentioned here, do you think there'll be some number of them that try and tough it out and whatnot? Um, 
I really hope not. Only reason that'd be done is the team and or driver or both trying to save a little bit of weight for the sake of performance. But, oh my goodness, uh, the idea of having a driver that is fresher uh, throughout an entire race in terms of performance gains compared to, all right, well, you're baking and miserable and not able to perform at your peak for decent stretches of the race. Uh, the amount of performance you would gain per lap by losing whatever it is, the 8, 10 pounds of the uh, the entire cool shirt system to the drivers just being fresher and more able to perform, there's no argument whatsoever that is valid for going without the cool shirt system. So I hope we hear, we see, we learn that uh, all the drivers are uh, suited and cooled and happy. James Lau, uh, let's see, I'm just looking at uh, how far away we are from the red line. Um, boy, I don't even know. Let me take a look. I'm getting scared here. Did I just like crazy scroll past it? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Well, we're not crazy far away. Actually, not at all. And yeah, got a little bit of time. Okay. James Lau, you say, hey, I have to commend Alex Pillow and his gracious tone in the media scrum. He's that good of a guy, though I still can't imagine how he keeps a, a good face when heading into the trailer and even just crossing paths with Chip. I, that's an interesting take, James. Um, he didn't budge. Stonewalled uh, was not getting into the contract stuff at all. Zero surprise there. So, again, I didn't see Alex do anything that uh, he was not expected to do. I don't, you know, I don't know if gracious was the tone or was it just him answering questions, doing everything in his power to not take the bait to talk about this situation that he created. And when I say he created, I'm saying that for a reason. Say that because I've seen some really weird reactions to this talking about well boy there's a lot of pr people who need to be fired how dumb are they to post on top of each other and it's like oh my god what are you talking about <laughs> this is nothing to do with pr people mistakenly announcing the same thing within a couple hours of each other uh that was 100 percent not a coincidence uh from the mclaren side uh another thing too the well quotes and quotes were fabricated and uh look again that's not uncommon it's actually common it's really kind of the norm like the funny part like really the funny part is sometimes you'll see it on the uh the post race broadcast cars come into pit lane and sometimes you'll either get a camera zooming in here or there if there's a couple different cameras filming you'll maybe get a couple different angles and maybe someone had a really bad race or you know someone screwed up whatever it is and you'll see the driver and whomever it is and their team having some sort of heated or animated conversation about whatever you know that they had a bad race you know that somebody screwed up uh, or maybe they got hit by somebody and they're crazy mad and right you see that i realize that y'all don't get your inbox filled with all the team's press releases at the end of every day of running or 
race reports with whatever else with driver quotes in it but i just love when you go like okay that person had a nightmare of a race and hey i would might have been standing right next to him after the race and saw them vent and blow up and whatever and 90 minutes later you get the press release from the team well hey we we did our best and gosh and we came close and you know wow i really got to thank our sponsors and you know what and gosh and golly and gee and you go dude (laughs) uh you didn't say those words and i can guarantee you the the team didn't come to you afterwards and say hi really angry driver who was just venting um would you please approve this totally innocuous quote just as vanilla as can be would you please like it doesn't happen so again i not saying this has a direct relation to what alex was saying alex and i we have to assume that what he is saying is all accurate right um but yeah if you only knew (laughs) how often driver quotes whether it is practice qualifying race or announcements uh, team owner quotes what sponsor quotes like for real these are written the majority of the time by pr folks in many instances but not all they are sent around for approval maybe the person who is saying these things is the one that says hey could you tweak or change this maybe their assistant maybe their team manager is the one that looks at it every team's different how they handle these things but anyways um what we saw last week somewhat to my amusement was folks being totally distracted and getting caught up on things that were just uh sparkly shiny distractions nothing more um alex is the one who made all this happen i feel bad for him having seen how it's blown up but really and truly his decision to put his name he held a pen in hand maybe he used his finger who knows if it was one of those digital document signing things but whether it was using his finger to do it or his whole hand with a pen to sign this person that we love who's a member of the prude listener group that listens to this podcast uh, our dear dear pal alex knowingly because he's a very smart person wrote his name on a contract for chip ganassi racing and wrote his name on one for mclaren racing that decision to put his name on the second contract oh that's where this whole thing is blown up so talking about staying positive james and gracious tones and whatnot then hearing some other quotes later in the weekend you know in the scrum mentioning about how he's happy and everything's good at ganassi and then later like his performance this weekend on track that to me was gracious commendable everything like he really all the big fire that he started he was able to put that out of his mind focus on the job and deliver so truly impressive that guy is just steely as can be the rest of the stuff though interacting with the media what was said what wasn't said and saying some things that directly conflicted what he said a few days before about i want out of here and i'm not i'm a grumpy god let me go but hey i'm happy and everything's good and you 
I think a lot of that's just trying to quiet uh, some of the noise that he created. And so, yeah, maybe we just see this a little bit different. Uh, Ed Joris, you say, if Ganassi were going to do a gong show for Alex Pelot's seat, is HPD's simulator good enough for such tests? And might he, might it actually be better than doing one on a track? It absolutely would not. Um, this is a dynamic thing. Not saying that you can't have a crew chief and race engineer and all spotters and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of folks. Uh, not only couldn't have them in the room for a, a driver in the loop simulator run, but we're talking about doing a gong show, getting a feel for somebody top of lap times that being a pretty good arbiter of oh hey wow right would expect all those lap times to be pretty darn close if we're talking you know championship caliber type talents but what a team wants to do more than anything that a simulator won't do is the ability to look listen observe discern the eyes of that driver coming in how they talk how they describe the feedback right again you can do a lot of that stuff through DIL. <sighs> but the real interpersonal side that would have a Chip Ganassi or Mike Hall or Barry Wanzer or Blair Julian or Chris Simmons or Julian Robertson, like there's that real organic aspect of race car on race track, watching the driver perform, listening to them, how they communicate what they observe, their feedback style, their interaction style, right? Um, it's all those things that you absolutely would not get going to a simulator. So no, this team would 100% want to go somewhere if they were unconvinced about who it is they wanted to sign to do that gong show on a real racing track. Uh, let me just see here. Okay, just a little bit past an hour. I'm uh, going to knock out two more questions here and then probably a, a quick run through a couple of, of overtime ones beneath the red line of death, and then we're going to say farewell for this episode. I don't think I'm going to do a guest episode this week, by the way. Um, I could do one here on Wednesday, knowing that I fly very early Thursday. I don't know if the person that I want to have as my guest is someone that i should have as my guest maybe i'll explain that at a later date um robbie bergren uh, this is a really good one marshall do you think chip should rethink how he pays young drivers if they end up paying off says it seems like the big reason he lost rosenquist and now below is he wanted to pay them less than they felt they were worth says i'm not a championship winning owner but I would certainly want to sign my 25-year-old champion driver several more years and contracts. It's a great point here to close. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting debate, Robbie. I don't think you're going to find a consensus anywhere on this topic. Reason being, you have two trains of thought. I think one train is maybe favored by older folks and maybe the other one could be favored by younger folks. I don't know. There's a really big aspect here of, hey, whatever the number was on how much you're getting paid, 
you signed your name and agreed to that. And it might be a small number and you might've like really, truly way super extra quadruple <laughs> outperformed that contract that you signed. If it's a two year, three year, whatever year, right? Hey, after year one, whoa, way beyond expectations. But you signed this and I know it sucks for you in that second year. If it's a two year contract, like we know. Uh, Alex has in particular, Felix too. Um, but that's what you signed. This goes the other way, right? Okay, we sign you to a new, a second contract, right? We're keeping you. Signed you to a two-year. Uh, we're signing you to another two-year contract. You just won championship. You did great, amazing things. And maybe in year one, you of that new contract year three overall the team you live up to it and boy you're amazing what about year two of that contract what if you poop the bed what if you fall apart what if you get really distracted and again these things happen really do happen you and your girlfriend boyfriend whatever friend break up get divorced uh run through hey your manager ran off with all your money uh lightning hit your house and it caught on fire there's so many things in life that can distract a driver and take them off their game would you expect a chip ganassi to go back and say hey we just signed this new contract i'm giving you a ton of money driver x and yeah boy, you delivered in year one, but man, you choked in year two. I want to sign a new contract or I want you to give me back something. Or maybe I halfway through that second season was pissed and saw that there's no way we're going to win a championship based on your poor performances, your whatever it is. And right now I want to do something new. So you give back money like this goes both ways. So I don't disagree. Nobody in their right mind would disagree that Alex Pillow massively outperformed his contract. Uh, I've heard time and time again what the amount is. I will not mention it out of respect to him, but it's not a lot of money. Any argument he might make coming off of winning a championship for the team in his first year in terms of, hey, <laughs> value let's let's try and fix this a little bit yeah um he has a, a valid point to make but that's also something that depending on the age and era of a team owner and this doesn't just apply to motor racing this is across all other sports because we see this happen all the time right hey uh signed a five the wide receiver signed a five-year deal and at the time they were the highest paid in their position across the entire NFL. But after three years, there's a new wide receiver that came in and took stats out of the freaking hemisphere, played better than anybody, got a new contract that made the other wide receivers contract look small. What do we often see? Fail to report for training camp, wants to negotiate something new because the contract that was once the best is now looking pretty lame and they want to get bumped up because someone else got bumped up 
Owners deal with this stuff all the time. Some say, look, I got it. I hear you. You had a great year. You did all kinds of stuff. This is the amount of money we agreed to. You had a choice to say no to it, but you didn't. You said, yes, this is what I'm going to pay you because this is what we have agreed to. Contracts must have some sort of value in terms of authenticity, right? This is real and valid and authentic. We all agree to it. We, we need to stick to this. Otherwise, why even bother if everything's going to be subject for, well, I did better than I feel I'm getting paid, so give me more money. You never hear that, you know what? Pay me less. I'm sucking this year. Uh, you're getting a 40% rebate. It's pretty much a one-way street. And so I think this is where someone like a chip, an old school guy, hey, you signed your name to the contract, honor it. Otherwise, you have no honor. That kind of mentality, I think that's what we're seeing here. I also think, even though you'd have to, I think, say Chip's 100% right in that approach, honor what you signed. could also say, you know what? Yeah, you could hold the guy to that same small crappy contract in year two probably going to get a little grumpy though right um is that going to sow uh dissension or disharmony or dis whatever to the point to where all of a sudden you got a driver who's a bit off the reservation so i do think that there's also a pretty decent argument to say yes even if chip is a hundred percent right say nope not changing a thing if you look super big picture what would have been better value saying, okay, I don't agree with you and I don't want to do this, but for the sake of long-term harmony and Hey, maybe uh, I'm going to put a new contract in front of you, not just new in terms of one that says you're going to get more money, but new in terms of there's more years added to it. Hey, all right. If I'm going to bump you up, then if I'm going to commit to giving you more, I need you to commit to give me more. Did these things happen? I don't know, but in hindsight, I think you might be able to say, had Chip gone against what I believe to be his nature of stand on what you signed, we're not having this conversation. At the same time, just for the, the full round circle, round table view, how many drivers have signed multi-year contracts and not lived up to them. Maybe they did for one of the years, but did they in the second or third? Uh, if this does not go both ways, and they never do, it's probably one of the reasons why you would see someone say, nope, put your name on it, stick to it, I'll talk to you when it's over, and we can come up with something new. Uh, and if not, well, best of luck. <sighs> it's just not a case of who's right or wrong here. It really isn't. Uh, this is just a case of what would have been in the best interest for everyone long-term. I don't know if that was truly seen and prized and prioritized in the way that it should have been. Because if it was, and there was some give and take here, hmm, we're not having this conversation. Uh, Dan Rice 
talking about a WWE IndyCar pay-per-view crossover, extravaganza, Chip Ganassi and Zach Brown to the main event. The winner gets Alex Pillow. What kind of match do you make it? Standard one fall? Is it steel cage or is it hell in a cell? No. This is a TLC. This is tables, ladders, and chairs. <laughs> I want to see Chip do a power bomb uh, of Zach through a table. I want to see Zach jump off the top of a ladder and uh, flatten Chip on the announcer's table. I feel like Alex would be doing a lot of kendo sticks, right? I know, again, you said it's a match between Chip and, and Zach, but keep in mind, I think, you know, Alex might be running out there with the kendo sticks, uh, you know, leaving some marks on Chip, trying to help the, the new boss he wants to have uh, win the thing. So he gets him. So I think that's the way it ends up. But could you imagine a TLC match, uh, Zach and Chip with chairs swinging at each other? Like, granted, and I mean, I'm not really one to talk, but, you know, do these guys gas out after about uh, one and a half minutes? Probably. But, uh, yeah, definitely a TLC match. Um, both of them could fund extra cars off of the profits from this. Let's absolutely make this happen. Uh, John Hollinger, you ask a great question here. I want to know about the influence of managers in the sport. Uh, he said, heard a couple mentions of Pelot changing his management team. Uh, I've heard that he has made, or I shouldn't say heard. I know that he, some changes have been made within the management team, but I think it's the management team making the changes. I don't believe Alex has actually gotten, quote, new managers. Um, he also mentioned, you recall, Oliver Askew's management being the source of the problems at Air McLaren SP, uh, you say, besides Stefan Johansson, it seems like a group that most fans know very little about. So what I would recommend, John, is not sending this in, but joining us either this weekend or most likely next Monday at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific for the next Twitter Spaces episode of the Hashtag Racing Family Show, where my co-host, the steamed or esteemed something in there, Chris Wheeler, uh, would be the person to ask why, well, that is Oliver Askew's new manager. Uh, and he has been for a little bit. And Bourdais and Zach Veach and Alex Kareba and a few others. So uh, my co-host, my dear pal, uh, is also one of them driver managers. So I think that would be a great place, John, if you can uh, come join us next week, next Monday, coming out of Iowa, which is probably going to be the main topic. But uh, get in there. And uh, ask good old uh, Wheeler about the same thing. Uh, let's see, Max Campus. You know, before that, Louise Smith. You want to know a little bit about the uh, Zach and uh, Chip Bad Blood? That's in this week's uh, Racer Magazine mailbag. That should be popping up here Wednesday morning. Um, just look for that there, Louise. Also wanted to say, just so happy to see that you continue to fight and do wonderful things, kicking cancer's butt. And I cannot wait. To see you here in Portland uh, again and give you a big hug. Uh, Anthony Pianta, you also ask about the roots of that bad blood. Check out the mailbag there. It's one of the questions. I was answering mailbag questions starting last Thursday. Um, 9,200 total words, 17 pages. The longest mailbag I've ever done. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm praying for the most boring Iowa ever because I, I, I need an intercooler for my cool board if they keep being like this. Um, let me come back here to the main one I was going to answer, and I think this will just be our close, and I appreciate all of you who are sticking around for a little bit of overtime. Max Camposano, you're going to take us home here, pal. Uh, you say, at what point will the quote, he's a rookie, excuse, stop working for Kyle Kirkwood? He says, you know, does he have something he needs to fundamentally change? Is there something about his approach that needs to change? He says, I totally understand. It's his first year in the big leagues. It's a huge adjustment. But he seems like he's totally out of control with the crashing. One thing to mention here on that topic, super thing of clarity, his crash at mid-Ohio in the race was a rear suspension. There was a failure within the rear suspension. Not the A-arms and not the push rods, but uh, as I'm told, the the third spring arrangement failed, uh, caused the, the back of the car to sit down and bottom, and basically, yeah, um, for where it happened in the track, that is what sent him off track. Not his fault. Um, but yeah, oh, man. Uh, funnily enough, I was talking about this very thing today with uh, another good pal, Larry Foyt. And again, full love for Kyle. Uh, he's going to be awesome. He's going to be everything that we expect him to be. I, I mean, I got to believe that. But what's weird, this is not something we've seen before from him. Normally, these things pop up, manifest on the road to Indy. And it's where it's supposed to happen, right? That's our version of college ball. You make mistakes, you do this, you do that, right? You throw a lot of interceptions, you do a lot of whatever, strike out a bunch, but you learn and you get better and you prepare yourself and you get to the majors, you get to the pros and you've worked out, you've ironed out all those mistakes you're making, the, the bad decisions that you were making. Kyle had none of those in the road to Indy. Not saying he never crashed, not saying he never, you know, made mistakes, but just by and large, this kid had among the cleanest ascensions up the road to Indy. Like, whoa. And so that is why it is so strange to have seen essentially none of that while he was playing college ball. And yet it's been fumbling and interceptions and uh, yeah, all kinds of, of huh a lot of it seems to be decision making right uh whether it's pushing too hard at a point in a session or a race where you go okay i don't know and all right in the wall or a spin or contact or a broken whatever this past weekend i don't know what that was in the race um i was talking to a friend uh who's won a couple of them Indy 500s and definitely a couple of them IndyCar championships after the race, uh, doing a little article about Scott Dixon getting to his 52nd win. And we were talking about that incident between Kyle and Jimmy. And the one comment made from the person who knows and who's won there was, that's not a place where you try and pass. Like, <laughs> that ain't it. And if that were the only mistake made or that were the only thing done then you go all right well you won't try that again but the comments of kind of putting that on jimmy that ain't that ain't thing here so i don't know what it is it's a weird thing that i just 
never expected to happen thought all the clean crisp sharp stuff that made his road to indie adventure so impressive i thought that was just going to carry over here with the Foyt team even if he's finishing last every weekend because the car is slow i just did not expect him to be spinning crashing taking others out uh as what feels like as often as he has of late um especially knowing the team cannot afford uh to be replacing expensive parts over and over again while they're fighting uh to get their finances straight um yeah that honestly is among the strangest things that i would have never predicted this year max it's also kind of been a year where were we going to predict any of this (laughs) what uh no idea just absolutely no idea this is insane uh hey everybody said marcus erickson was going to win the indy 500 and uh be leading the championship on multiple occasions oh yeah hey everyone was expecting colton herta coming out of 2021 winning the last true and two races in dominant fashion almost three ra- the last three races in dominant fashion everybody said he was going to get off to a slow start and be largely ineffective uh until kind of having his first real strong from start to finish event at round 10 yeah everybody absolutely said that uh felix rosenquist coming off of a disastrous opening year with air mclaren sp um hey all of a sudden he's maybe not exactly a match for pato every weekend but yeah this guy is totally back to what we thought he was going to be when he joined the team but wasn't but now that he is he is and yeah no and hey by the way alex Pelot looking like the future of chip ganassi race oh you want out of here and let me go and hey let's blow things up just work down the list <laughs> you know, hey Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing. Um, you're gonna be absolutely nowhere and embarrassed of yourselves almost everywhere you go, but you go and have a good mid-season-ish test at Sebring and boom! Uh two of your three cars are really back in strong play at Toronto and but is that gonna maintain it Iowa? Who knows? Just every yeah, everything. It's been among the craziest years I can remember. And I said that last year. And it was convinced that it wasn't going to happen again. And yet again, I'm wrong. All right, y'all. Uh, thank you. Enjoy speaking with y'all. Going to do this next week from a hotel in Indianapolis. And hopefully, for my sake and the mailbag's sake and you name it, Iowa is as boring as can be. And uh, it's a race and it happens. And then we just kind of move on. But have a little bit of a pause in the craziness. That's my hope. Not really, because then it'd be boring and nobody wants boring racing. But uh, anyways, thanks again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Tim Falkowitz, you are a rock star. Jerry Siddeth, we miss you. Jim Kaiser, we love you. Put together the uh, the questions for us for about a year. Um, <sighs> deep breaths. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>